Welcome to The Waitlist. I'm Alex. I'm a student trainee psychotherapist in the UK. According to MIND, there are 1.6 million people on the waiting list for mental health treatment with the NHS. A further 8 million can't get on the list because they're not deemed unwell enough. My aim for The Waitlist podcast is to explore different ways we can support our own mental health. I'll be interviewing people with a range of perspectives on mental well-being, including psychotherapy. If something piques your interest, I'd encourage you to do your own research. I'll be sharing resources in the show notes. Now let's get started with this week's episode. Janine Wilson works with children, young people and their families through NHS Child and Adolescent Mental Health Services, CAMS. She is an Associate Lecturer and Clinical Supervisor on the University of Reading CBT course, co-chair of DNI Working Groups, as well as creator and facilitator of the workshop series Let's Talk About Race. Janine is also a visiting facilitator for the drama therapy program at Roehampton University and alongside all of this she has a private practice offering drama therapy and CBT for adults, couples and families. We'll use this episode to primarily explore CBT, we'll also use the time to open up the conversation around diversity and we'll touch on one of Janine's focus areas, drama therapy. Janine, welcome to The Waitlist. Hello, thank you very much for having me. <laughs> Good to have you here. You. So at The Waitlist, we believe that mental health can feel like a taboo topic to many um, and that talking about our own mental health can really chip away at that taboo. So each episode, I like to borrow a question from Alan de Botton, which is, how are you mad? So how oh, are you mad, Janine? How am I mad? <laughs> this question is a great one. Um, I think when I was listening... When I was listening to you kind of reading off the different bits about what I do and all the different spaces that I'm in, I think that linked to how I'm mad, maybe in some ways, because I um, I feel I probably spread myself thin quite a lot. So I probably end up doing over and above what is possible. I'm actually sounding a little bit husky today because I'm not feeling very well. Um, sometimes I get a bit run down. Um, so I think sometimes my madness can be in overdoing it sometimes thinking I have to it's like what's the next thing what's the next thing not just being happy with oh this is a nice comfortable pace it's like oh no that's too comfortable come on ratchet up a little bit so that's probably how I'm mainly mad yeah I I, I relate yes. I relate yeah. um all right so we wanted to talk about a few things during this episode mm -hmm. and one of the core things that we wanted to chat about is CBT yeah. can you share a little bit about particularly for those that might not already know what it is, mm -hmm. what is CBT? Okay, um, so CBT, Cognitive Behaviour Therapy, um, is a form of therapy that helps bring together thoughts, feelings, behaviours, um, and looks at how we can improve our lives, looks at how we can improve, uh, there might be something specific going on for you, or there might be something specific happening in your life, it might have just popped up, um, that CBT can help with. It's really a therapy that focuses on the here and now. So it's not necessarily a therapy that thinks about what happened, you know, previous experiences, etc. Um, but it's quite good for things like anxiety, low mood, um, specific kind of quite recent traumas, maybe specific traumas as well. Um, and it just helps you connect what I'm thinking with what I'm feeling, with what I'm doing and how I might be able to change some of those things 
to improve, again, mood, anxiety, etc. That's a really good overview. Thank you. You mentioned specific traumas there. And I would imagine that to those outside of the field of therapy, trauma can feel like quite a big word. Yep, yep, yep. Can you explain a little bit about kind of the scale of trauma and also considering perhaps for something like generalized anxiety how it doesn't cbt doesn't necessarily have to have an underlying kind of big trauma behind exactly, it exactly exactly so when i talk to people about trauma i like to think of trauma in a way of it having a big t and a little t i think sometimes the the big t and little t can be how society look at it so people might say oh a big trauma would be abuse violence natural disaster etc because externally people look at it and think oh my gosh wow that's a huge trauma how are you dealing with that kind of thing the little t's i would say are things that people may not necessarily want to term as traumatic but they still are so that might be a parent having left or that might be the end of a relationship um or that might be um you feeling anxious about talking in front of people at work because somebody laughed at you in the audience and you saw them laugh, that kind of thing. Where, you know, society externally might say, that's not traumatic, what are you talking about? Just get over it, come on, pick up your bag and let's keep it going. But actually, that is still very traumatic in itself and the way you've processed it has now led to further anxiety in the future. So I think that A, it's important to think about, you know, big T, little t, don't kind of be down on yourself if something externally to other people doesn't feel like it's a trauma. If it's traumatic to you, if it's impacting on you in some way, definitely get support for it and don't feel ashamed to do so. Um, did that answer the question? I that feel like I went off on a question. tangent. No, I think <laughs> that's such sure a great way okay, of looking yeah. at it. Big T's and little T's. And we all have them. Particularly little T's. We all have them. We all have little T's. And that's the thing. I think sometimes we don't even realise the little teas that we have until we maybe get like a little niggle. We get like a little, oh, I didn't like when that person said that. And then, oh, don't be so insecure. Don't be so sensitive. When actually it could be tapping on something that is a little tea that has happened in the past Mm. that you haven't necessarily recognised. And I would imagine with your clients as well, um, sometimes those little teas or even those big teas aren't necessarily what people are coming in with. It might be, oh, I don't know why I'm feeling this way. And sometimes it can take a bit of kind of co-created exploration to figure out, well, what are your big T's and your little T's? Yeah, definitely. And I know I know we aren't on drama therapy yet, but <laughs> I think that is sometimes what happens. So people will come to um, an initial consultation and say, right, Janine, I want CBT. Um, I'm, I've got, you know, generalized anxiety. I'm really anxious. So I've only really been anxious for like the past year. Like, let me just get some CBT and let's go. And then we start, you know, we do the initial assessments, look at some formulation, things like that. Fine. We think, yeah, cool. All right. You seem anxious. Fine. Let's go. And then as you start to look at the examples, you start to unpick. Oh, hold on a second. Actually, this was present in your last job. And also it's present at home with your brother. And also it was present in secondary school. And also... And then you start to kind of go back in the line of the experiences that that person's had and you realise actually, hmm, maybe this isn't a quick, and I say quick because CBT is meant to be seen as quite a short-term intervention. It isn't something you're necessarily supposed to be in for years and years. It's supposed to be a short piece of work, maybe 
12 to 15 sessions depending on your clinician um but quite soon i would say a large percentage of the clients i see start with some cbt learn skills learn coping strategies and then they're like oh but I'd kind of like to unpick this thing that did happen when I was 12, or I'd kind of like to think about this thing that happened before. So I think it can be a good introduction into how CBT and drama therapy mm. merge. Yeah. Well, that feels like a good segue. So CBT, um, we've gone through as a bit of a high level explanation and we can get into more of that. Drama therapy is another of your specialities. Can you mm. explain a little bit about what is drama therapy for someone that's never heard of it? And I'm one of those people. Yes, the drama therapy. So it's a form of psychotherapy that uh, uses all of the kind of dramatic, therapeutic, theatric arts in its creative processes. Um, so what, you oft what I often hear is people say, I don't really know what it is that's wrong, but something just feels wrong. Or I can't really express it in words, but it feels like this or it sounds like that. So what drama therapy helps you do is explore that, whatever it is that you're bringing to therapy, without necessarily needing to just sit down opposite somebody and use words. So it literally uses all of the, the theatre kind of art. So that's, you know, writing, poetry, uh, scripting, movement, it uses dance, it uses uh, still imagery, pictures, everything, film, everything that you would use in drama, you can use in the therapy space. So it does allow distance as well, which is why, so remember I was saying CBT is definitely more of a here and now, what's the present problem, what can we work on, kind of behaviours, strategies, etc., Drama therapy, I would definitely say we are more looking back. We are more looking at experiences from the past. We're thinking about where in the body things might be. Um, and we're exploring some of the previous links. We are still in the present, but we're thinking more about the, the, the history of the client and how that has maybe brought them to present day and what's happening with them in the therapy space. Mm, that's fascinating. Mm. And I can really see how... You know, not everyone loves talking about things. It's not necessarily everyone's preferred way of communicating. Yeah. I can talk for England, so I love it. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> but for many people, it's not that it's not top of their list, right? Exactly. Exactly. And I think there's that there's that sense of uh if you do want to talk, you can. But it's, it's, it's interesting, you often do reflect back in drama therapy, okay, we're using a lot of words here. I wonder what our body is telling us or I wonder what is in our breath today or what's in our uh, voice today, that kind of thing. So you think a lot more holistically, I guess, about the person, kind of what's happening and what, what sometimes are we avoiding by using a lot of words. Because as we know with trauma, there's a well-known book some people might know called body, um, The Body Keeps the Score. That kind of thing, you know, trauma is held in our body. So we might be going on along our daily day, but our stomach hurts, our feet hurt, our head hurts. And we're like, but why? Like I've eaten, I've had water, I've, you know, all of these different things. But it's these somatic symptoms that often tell us that something is going on emotionally. And I think I would say that to clients as well. You know, people that think 
um, something's up, but they're feeling a lot of physical ills and they go to their GP and the GP's like, oh, take some paracetamol, oh, you know, sleep more, whatever. Great. But maybe those things aren't helping. So think a little bit about maybe is there, again, some of those big T's, little T's maybe that could be causing some of that physical pain that you might be experiencing as well. Mm, amazing. We mentioned a little bit there around what's going in the body and sometimes it sounds like those can be things that you might take to your GP. Mm -hmm. I would imagine in particularly in the drama therapy room with your clients, there are also other signals that may not be pain necessarily, but mm -hmm. the way perhaps somebody carries their body or can yep. you share any examples around bringing the body into the here and now, how you might work with that in the therapy room? So I think firstly, it is about the client wanting to work in that way, because I think body work is definitely something, A, there has to be a level of trust, you know, expecting somebody to come into a room with you and be open to move, etc., etc. It has to be, you know, there's contracting that takes place. There's a conversation that takes place. Any good therapist, you know, I tell people when they're looking for therapists, always check in, you know, on someone's credentials. What work have they done? Um, where are they certified? Do they have insurance? All those kind of things. And then they should always be having a conversation with you about mutual, uh, you know, will I touch your arm? Will I touch your shoulder? Etc. If you become distressed, what will I do? What will I say? Um, there's kind of sp safe space conversations that you have that you should that your therapist should be having with you before starting any kind of work that's trying to bring you into the body. Um, and in drama therapy, we talk about creating like a ritualized space. So we talk about, you know, uh, let's imagine the session's an hour. You may come in, have some of that, you know, initial kind of non-problem type talk. How'd you get here? How's your day? You know, that kind of stuff. Um, and then even though some therapists don't believe in that, but that's another conversation. And, you know, coming in and kind of introducing the work that's going to be done today. And then stepping into what we kind of call the liminal space, so the unknown bit. So I don't know what's going to come out today. You might have some cloth, you might have some paper, some pencils, um, some puppets, you know, just general creative things kind of sparsely thrown around the space kind of thing. And just allowing in that time where the unknown happens to visit. So you may do in CBT what we might call kind of reliving type work you may take yourself back to a time or place you might revisit you might have asked the client to bring in a picture from a time that they remember and you might go into that picture but creatively in the room so there's there's different ways of kind of getting into the body but a has to be agreed with the client that this is what we're going to do b has to kind of um be on their terms agreement and be on their terms and also have enough space to then come back out because as you can imagine when you're going into any kind of body work you're in there so this is no longer me just talking about what happened two years ago or talking about how I feel this is now me feeling in my body how I felt at that time or what was happening for me at that time and some real you know the word explosive comes to mind so I'll use it but like some real yeah, explosive emotions can come up and it's important to be able to hold those, contain them. And then, you know, to be fair, they've come to your therapy room, which is probably, you know, 
on the high street somewhere. So realistically, they're then going to have to leave that room and go back into the world. So it's making sure that you're containing them enough for them to be able to then come out of that space, prepare to then go back out kind of to their, you know, daily lives or daily lives or whatever. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I'd imagine as well for some people, particularly listening to this, that might be interested on the drama therapy side of things and, you know, perhaps moving beyond kind of quote unquote traditional talking therapies, Mm -hmm. going into the body, if that sounds interesting or being creative. Mm It's important to underline that that will be at their own pace. Yes. Particularly for going into the body, which can sometimes feel, I would imagine, um, even more personal for some people. Yeah, definitely. So it's important that when you're looking for a therapist, for those people listening, you have that mutual understanding. And as you say, any good therapist will go through that contracting piece. But the reason I'm underlining that is I want to make sure that for people listening, there isn't a kind of daunting expectation that you need to go in and suddenly, you know, feel as though the therapist is kind of working with you in a very um, fast paced way to get to a certain place. Exactly, exactly. And I think there is that, I guess, conversation to be had again with any therapist that you look to work with about the way they work. So for example, if you've gone to to look for a CBT therapist and CBT is what you're asking for, you know, there are times where people have maybe said to me, oh yeah, I want to do CBT. And in my mind, after our initial consultation, I've thought, no, I'm not sure if you need CBT. I think you need more. But I'm never going to say, no, I'm not going to give you CBT because we have to remember this is also a, you know, this is a, sounds sounds strange but it's a paid relationship you know if someone is asking for something I will always make recommendations and say I wonder if this might be helpful or that might be helpful but you do have to be led and it has to be a collaborative decision um and also I think you know there are some people that there are clients that I work with that I've worked with them for maybe six to eight months before they've even felt able to get into any kind of body work or any kind of movement or anything like that. So again, your therapist has to go at your pace. They can't force, they can't push, they can collaborate, they can encourage, they can facilitate, but they definitely can't force you to do anything. And if you ever are left feeling like that as a client, then to me, that should, that relationship should be terminated. You shouldn't feel like you're being forced to do anything that you don't want to do. Absolutely. You spoke a little bit there um, and earlier around kind of finding a therapist, the things to be looking for, like insurance. You mentioned accreditation. Are you able to share a little bit around different um, types of accreditation bodies or ethical bodies that people should look out for? Yeah. So you got to make sure you got to double check these letters after. I will. But I think (laughs) so. uh, So, for example, I'm with the BABCP in terms of CBT and with the HCPC in terms of uh, drama therapy. Um, And then I'm also with Barton, so B-A-A-T-N, which isn't an accredited kind of body, but it is the Black, African and Asian Therapist Network. Um, But in terms of uh, bodies, so just like with, you know, doctors, they have to have particular bodies to make sure every year that they're, you know, keeping up with their accreditation and things like that. Um, BABCP and HCPC are both bodies that as a therapist you have to 
be with if you are trained in a particular profession. Just like with nurses, they have to be with the NMC. It's that kind of thing. So any therapist that isn't with an accredited body, I wouldn't see. And I'll, I'll say that uh, point blank in a way, because there should we have to be, you know, there has to be guidelines, there has to be ethics checks and things like that. And the only way a therapist can do that is if they're linked to those accredited bodies. So BABCP, HCPC. Um, and then you asked, what, did, what was the other thing you said? You said accredited bodies and... Insurance. Insurance. So yes, so again, people should have, uh, you know, pub, uh, indemnity, liability, depending on how large their organisation is, who they're working for. If you're seeing somebody through the NHS, so if you aren't seeing somebody privately, then obviously insurance and things like that comes under their job. But if you're seeing somebody privately, again, you should be asking them, uh, you know, who are they insured by? If something was to happen, what would they do? Um, I don't mind if someone says to me, you know, if something goes wrong, who do I tell? Because mm. actually, I want you to be asking me that question because you need to know that type of thing. If I'm providing a service, if you went to a physiotherapist, if something went wrong, who do you tell? So those are the type of questions you should be asking. Um, again, I always say, if you ask that of a therapist and they get defensive or they're like, why are you asking that? To me, I would worry because, yeah, I don't Absolutely. see. Yeah, we need to be open and transparent about what we're offering because we're working with people's emotional health and well-being. You wouldn't go to a doctor that wasn't a real doctor. And you shouldn't go to a therapist that isn't a real therapist. So, Absolutely. And we can share those links in the show notes as well. All of the acronyms can feel overwhelming yes. when you're looking for a therapist. Definitely. Even for me, a oh, therapist. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I always think, am I left out a letter somewhere in there? <laughs> but yeah. And, and those um, bodies and, and those kind of ethical frameworks and resources can also be a good way. Many of their websites have therapist directories that you can search within yep, yep, to give you some confidence there. Yes. But again, not being afraid to ask in an initial conversation or even a few sessions in if necessary, if it just comes to mind. Definitely. Having the confidence to ask your therapist about their credentials, how they work. Yep how you might work together. Yeah, definitely. You're the client. Exactly, exactly. And I think I always say to people, don't be afraid to be picky. You know, if you're going, if you're making a decision to be, it's like, you know, dating. If you're making a decision to be with somebody, don't just on the first date be like, oh, yeah, I found the one. This is great. This is my soulmate for life. Like, no, have a, have more, ask more questions. You know, the first time you, you go out, might be absolutely great. It's wonderful. Bells and whistles. But then the second time you're still having, you know, f f put the feelers out, check in, ask where people have trained, ask, you know, if you're going with a particular type of big T, for example, ask that therapist, have they ever worked with anybody? You might not feel actually, no, let me rewind that. You may not feel comfortable in that first session to say, have you worked with somebody who has um, experienced X. However, asking, you know, have they, have they got experience of working with people who have been through traumatic events or who have experience of abuse, domestic violence, etc., etc. Um, because knowing that is important. Um, I saw on uh, social media the other day somebody saying, you know, any therapist that thinks they're the right therapist for everyone isn't a good therapist. 
And it's true because you ca- you can't be the right therapist for everybody because it's about personal relationship. It's about working therapeutic relationship. And there are going to be some therapists that are right for people and some that aren't. So it really is about taking your time, finding the right person. If you, if you have the luxury, and I do call it the luxury, to be able to afford private therapy, whether that's through your private healthcare or you personally paying, even more so, definitely NHS-wise, but even more so if you're paying for this, take that time to really interview the therapist and check that it's someone that you want to work with. Yeah, that's such good advice. I guess as well, asking yourself the question, can I work with this person? Can I go on a journey with this person? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you spoke a little bit about cost there and, you know, this is called the wait list for a reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely acknowledge that paying for private therapy is a luxury, rightly or wrongly. Mm. Can we talk a little bit about... Um, can I say wrongly? Yeah. Can I interrupt? You Sorry. can absolutely, Rightly please. or wrongly? Mm. Wrongly. Because I think, I don't think we should have to, I don't think we should have to pay, if that makes sense. I think, you know, in an ideal world, because I mean, you know, I work across the NHS and privately, so I've got kind of both worlds. And from an NHS perspective, we really should be, you know, let's, we're not going on a, a government political conversation, but the NHS is so poorly funded. It's such a difficult thing to see people in the NHS waiting months and months and months for therapy. And then even then, at times, it can feel like it is such a conveyor belt. You know, it's like you wait forever you then get one one attempt. Then if you miss it or if you late, then they close you. It's, it can be a really difficult experience as someone working in the NHS as well. Um, and I just think, I just wanted to kind of jump in and say wrongly in terms of we shouldn't have to be paying, we shouldn't have to be waiting. Um, but yeah, <laughs> I, just, I think I just wanted to say that. But in you working in private practice and working in the NHS and seeing both in parallel, Mm -hmm. what can somebody experience from an NHS perspective when they come in, Mm -hmm. in terms of the types of therapies being offered? So so I work in CAMS um, and I would say I've worked in 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 a number of different CAMS across my career so far. And... I feel as though it's a bit of a lottery, which I think is a shame to say, but it is true. Um, I think that there are some CAM services that that offer uh, a real wide range of services. So that's CBT, DBT, family therapy, uh, creative arts therapies, etc. And then obviously, you know, access to psychiatry, etc. And then I think, unfortunately, just due to staffing, underfunded, etc., there are some that just can't offer that. And I don't think any of these services are not offering it because they don't want to. I think they're not offering it because they can't. I think staff retention in the NHS at the moment is awful. I don't think that the NHS is, is able at the moment to retain the staff that it needs to. I also think, again, unfortunately that it's not able to retain the staff because private practice is able to pay so much. 
So actually, if Joe Bloggs is going to go and work for the NHS, earn, I don't know, £100 a day or something um, in the NHS, trying to see caseloads of 30 to 40 people a week, um, or I could go to a, a private CBT company that's paying a hundred pounds a half day or, you know, or, you know, 80 pounds an hour or something like that. And I'm seeing five people a day, two people, a, you know, it's the numbers just don't make sense. And I think that's why, you know, when we see things like nurses striking and things like that, it's like, well, actually, if we just pay people properly, if we don't have, you know, as we know, we've got nurses in food banks, we've got people who can't turn on their heating, et cetera, et cetera. If we just stop that, then maybe the NHS would be better. You know, but again, we're not doing government and politics today. But um, I think that is the difficulty. And I think in the NHS, there are some amazing clinicians. I work with some absolutely wonderful clinicians on a day-to-day basis. But they, they are tired. You know, I manage a team. They're tired. They are coming in day after day, working with some, you know, very, very high risk people. And everybody's tired. And I think that's the difficulty that there's almost it feels like in the NHS at the moment, it feels like we're really fighting to find kind of the light at the end of the tunnel. We turn up every day. We support the people that we work with to the best of our ability. The therapy gets uh, provided at a good level. Um, but I do worry about what we're going to see over the next couple of years. And therapists, without speaking for an entire industry, but generally, mm. we would like to think that therapists are compassionate and caring people. Yeah. And I, I suppose um, many therapists working in the NHS also have a private pra- practice mm. to balance out that kind of compassionate need yeah. versus being able to manage yeah, their own kind of more daily lives. And, I would definitely say more and more people are doing that. I think a um, a financial need, definitely, you know, needing to 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 make more money, you know, by doing that. Also, I do think there is a different type of uh, client, maybe that you can see. So, for example, in the NHS, again, not speaking for all therapists, but I'm very aware that at times when you meet with clients in the NHS. Unfortunately, they have waited maybe so long that they might even be on the tip of crisis or they might be so close to they they need a lot, if that makes sense. While um, again, this is not for all clients, but in private practice, it may be that you're able to work with a client who has just kind of realized, oh, you know, I do want to have therapy or actually some clients. There isn't necessarily a problem, inverted commas. But I want to know a little bit more about myself. I get a little anxious when I do this. I wonder why that is. Um, You know, I get really angry with my child when she says this. I wonder why that is. So, you you know, you can see different types of clients, which, again, I think is really important for therapists to be able to see those that are really, you know, as I say, on the tip of crisis or in a real kind of uh, uh, difficult space. And also see those clients that maybe aren't as critically unwell necessarily, but want to kind of understand themselves a bit more. And I think having a balance of caseload in that way 
is really helpful. Yeah, absolutely. I think as well, it's a good example of, you know, everyone has their own mental health. Yeah. And using therapy to underpin your mental well-being, even if there isn't a knowingly big T or little T exactly. around, yep. can still be beneficial, right, yep. in terms of living in the way that you want to. Mm-hmm. I want to talk a little bit about coming back to private practice and um, the NHS. So the NHS, perhaps based on a GP referral mm-hmm. or another type of referral, is free at the point of service. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned, the point of service might be many months down the line. From a private practice perspective, what kind of range can people expect in terms of cost when they're looking Mm. at therapy? I think the, the range of cost privately if you can find it, I would say can range from free to hundreds of pounds. Which and you mean I, per hour, right? Per hour, yes, exactly, per hour. And the reason I say that is because we have some, you know, there's some amazing organisations, which I know you said you're going to put in the show notes mm-hmm. as well, and we'll mention them in a minute. But there's some amazing organisations that, uh, you know, I guess do still have funding etc to be able to offer low cost therapy um and free therapy uh with minimal weights i don't you know there's not many of them but there are a few um and then i think also there are we have to think that we do still live in a class-based society again rightly or wrongly wrongly um (laughs) we do still live in a class-based society so if you do have 200 and something pound an hour to pay a therapist working in a particular postcode in London, you could do that. And I think that's what I mean by it literally the bracket is that wide because does that necessarily mean, and again, this is what I mean by uh, it's, it's upsetting that we live in this class-based society because actually that person who's charging that 200 and whatever pounds per hour may be doing absolutely no better therapy than the person that's charging you 50 pounds per hour. However, because they have to pay for their whatever postcode uh, therapy room in whatever street in the middle of whatever city, um, they charge that price. And because they're seeing clients that can afford that price at no question, they will continue to charge that amount. Um, but there are definitely, there are, you know, middle of the road options kind of between your 40, your 50 to maybe your 100 pound mark. Again, it depends. CBT, uh, psychotherapy, psychiatry, it all depends on what you're trying to access. Um, I personally believe in a sliding scale. So I've got a sliding scale for my particular practice. Um, and that goes from if you're on kind of uh, uh, income based, if you're on benefits, you know, low minimum weight, you know, depending on what your income is uh, through to. So, so I work with students as well. I work with like trainee therapists and things like that. I'm very aware how difficult it is to train 
as well as, as I'm sure you are, <laughs> very difficult um, to kind of train and be in therapy and live your life. Um, so I have different rates for, th- uh, for trainees as well. And then understandably, because we all have to live, I have rates for people that are, you know, in full-time employment, don't have any kind of difficulties in terms of their financial circumstances and stuff like that. Um, and to be fair, I think, again, I'm sure I would say this because it's what I do, but I think if all therapists were to do that, I think in terms of the equity of access to therapy would be a lot better because then everybody could get good therapy regardless of who they were. But that's the dream. That's the dream. <laughs> that's the dream. Yeah. That's the dream. I want to talk about equity in a second mm-hmm. and access. Before we do that, you mentioned um, some free resources or yes. online resources that might be available to people. So I'm thinking this might be people on the wait list, quote unquote, yep. for NHS. Yep. It might be people um, not ready to pay or unable to find low cost therapy at the moment. Mm-hmm. What other resources are there out there that we could pop in the show notes for people to start exploring? Yeah. So uh, I took this from uh, Talking Circle London which is an Instagram account which has amazing uh, information about different, lots of different things. But I actually saw it this morning, so I thought it would be helpful. Um, So there's uh, free, reduced fee therapy in quite a few places. So problemshared.net, frontlinetherapist.com, cppd.co.uk, dedicated to change. So quite a few different links there that people can have a look at. Um, also, as we know, you know, NHS does offer three, free therapy, but as we say, there is a wait list for that. A lot of people, um, I don't think are aware that in their workplace, they can access free therapy as well. So, it, you know, it may not be lots and lots of sessions, but do go to, I don't know, your HR or your even, you know, just your line manager and say, would, you know, is there anything available in relation to where you work as well? Absolutely. And on that, um, most of those places, I don't want to guarantee this, but most of those places, the organization that you have therapy with and your organize, the place you work for mm. will be totally separate and yes. under a confidentiality agreement. Exactly. Definitely double check that. Yeah. But if they're doing it well, if yeah. they're doing it correctly, exactly, it's not as though the content you're sharing in your therapy is going to be shared with your work. Yeah. And I know, and I think I get, that's a really, really helpful point because a lot of people are afraid of that. They, you know, when we think about stigma around mental health, uh, you know, worrying about taking time off, you know, a lot of people, as we know, you know, if, if you don't work, you don't get paid. So this worry about that. So I completely understand and hear that that's a difficulty, but, ideally if there's someone in your workplace that you are able to talk to and say I'm going through this uh you know it would be helpful for me to speak to somebody like you said they should be separate organizations but do check in with that um and there's also I think one thing that the pandemic helped with um is allowing people to see that accessing online therapy is really helpful I think before the pandemic, the United Kingdom anyway, I think was very, very behind on online therapy. Like the NHS, I would say especially CAMS. Adult, I think they were probably a lot closer to doing it more, but, you know, close-ish, maybe not. Um, But definitely it was like, no, we don't do online, computers scare us, oh my gosh, no. uh." And then 
you know, we were thrust into a time when we kind of had to. There was nothing else we could do. Um, so I think the good thing is if you are able to access online therapy, there are a few uh, kind of online spaces. So Talkspace, that's a worldwide some uh, uh, therapy space as well. Uh, better help. That's something that I've heard quite a lot about. I've heard good reports from that. I know some clients who have gone on to work with better help. Uh, the counseling directory has got some spaces as well. And also they say here now, I don't know if this is true, so please don't quote me, but what it says here is therapy with a trainee can come cheaper and can also, but can also require a bit of commitment in terms of you may need to sign up to more than one session a week over a longer period. So Again, looking into that. And sometimes as well, when people hear trainee, we all had to train at some point and we all had to see clients while we were training. And I think that people worry sometimes because they hear trainee, they think, oh my gosh, they're not a professional, blah, blah, blah. But actually, I think sometimes seeing a trainee, you're very likely to get, you know, excellent therapy simply because as you know i'm sure i don't need to tell you but you know as a trainee you're you're getting regular supervision you're you know a lot of the time you're sh you know uh showing videos or you're you know recording audio obviously with consent of the client you're going through you know you're taking it to your lecturers your supervisors are having a think with you about how to make things better so again obviously with your consent but actually, you're really getting like a panel almost of therapists helping with what you need next, as opposed to just one person in a room. So I really wouldn't run away from having a trainee if you are able to access a trainee therapist. Yeah, we've spoken a little bit around supervision on this podcast before. Okay, great. But just in case people are listening to this episode and, and haven't listened to the whole series. Oh, yes. yeah. Supervisor sometimes sounds like it's like a team leader or a manager. Right, yep. The way I've described it in the past is, well, I can talk about my, my supervisor. My supervisor is somebody that I found off my own back as part of my professional development. Mm -hmm. It's a requirement as part of my ethical body, which is the UKCP. Mm -hmm. And what that supervisor does is we meet on a weekly basis. We talk about my caseload. And she is somebody that is decades ahead of me in terms of her experience. Mm -hmm. And what she helps me with is recognizing, firstly, is there anything I'm missing about this person, this client that I need to bring into the room or investigate further? And secondly, how am I doing as a trainee yeah. student yeah. psychotherapist? What are the things that I could be doing differently? What are the things I could be doing better? And again, having that relationship with my supervisor makes me a better therapist. All therapists will have some form of a supervisor, whether they're training or not. But you're absolutely right. In my experience, there is this kind of panel outside of the room, uh, metaphorically, that's really mm. supporting those trainees. Yep. Um, but again, important to make sure that those um, training organizations are really underpinned by those ethical bodies. Yes. All of the acronyms we've been talking about in this yep. episode that applies to those training um, organizations as well. Yeah, definitely. And that's another question to add to your um when you go to find a, a therapist, that's another question to add. Just, well, not necessarily who, because they don't necessarily have to tell you who it is, but they, ha they, they should be telling you that they have a supervisor. So nothing wrong with you saying, oh, you know, how often do you access supervision? Yeah, because 
they can tell you that. I love that. That's yeah. such a well-informed question to yeah. go in. So people can have that in their checklist or their toolbox. Definitely. Fully armed to go and have a conversation with a therapist. I want to switch gears a little bit now mm-hmm. and talk about, um, we've mentioned online therapy, we've mentioned cost. I want to talk a bit more about access and diversity in therapy mm-hmm. and hear a little bit about your experience as a professional, but also going through your training as well. Are you able to share any observations around equity and diversity across therapy? I think it's safe to say that in the NHS teams that I've worked in, the demographic of the service user client coming into the room is definitely very different from what is reflected in the workforce. Um, And I think that could be due to a, a number of different things, race being the main one. Um, I identify as black, um, Caribbean, and I definitely would say that in the majority of rooms that I go into, I'm usually the only black professional, usually the only black person, um, on the course that I teach on, um, again, possibly because of where it's based location wise, um, I would say that I'm definitely one of a minority in terms of people of color that work on work for the organization um in terms of when i'm teaching again a lot of the people so a lot of the trainees um while you know while a poll hasn't necessarily done visually i would say would identify as white or not of color the majority um and i think those are very important conversations to have because actually if the majority of clinicians that we're training are white, but then the majority of service users are of colour, then what are we doing? <laughs> that's, that's, I think that's kind of where that takes me. Um, I think that this is why I created the, the Let's Talk About Race series. So we look at Let's Talk About Race in the therapeutic space. So that's, um, you know, between client and therapist. If there is a difference in race between client and therapist, how is that being brought into the room? How is that experience, that client's experience, um, if that's what they want to bring in, because again, it's not about forcing it. But if that client has experienced racism and they want to bring that into the space, how is that discussed? How does that white therapist, for example, feel able to hold that conversation? Um, Again, we talk about, let's talk about race in the supervisory space. So again, you were talking about what supervision is and your supervisor is there to support you, help you as a trainee think about how you're doing, what's happening in the therapy. But if that supervisor is white and the therapist is white and the client is of color, it's really important for that supervisor to be able to have those conversations about race as well. Otherwise, how are they then guiding the trainee to have those conversations? And then we take the, the last step up. We think about it in leadership. So when we're thinking about team leaders, um, line managers, that kind of thing, service managers, borough leads, that kind of thing of NHS teams. Again, what are we doing within our teams in the NHS to make sure that we are actively being anti-racist so anti-racism we need to look at it it's a verb it's not just a thing it's not a noun it's not oh anti-racism great boom 
wonderful, but what are we doing? Um, and I think what the difficulties I'm finding is that we aren't having enough access. So in terms of people of color being able to access therapeutic trainings, um, and one thing that Barton do is actually look at some of the difficulties that people of color have being in quite white Eurocentric trainings where we are often made to feel like the other in the training. So then the training is really hard. The therapy that you go through probably with a white therapist is really hard. The supervisor, the supervision that you have probably with a white supervisor is really hard. So actually, if you make it out the other end, it's kind of well done. Um, but that is really something that I would like us to eventually start changing. And that's what I'm trying to start changing with the Let's Talk About Race workshops and stuff like that, because something needs to shift because more people are realizing that therapy is important, which I think is great. More people of color are realizing that therapy is important in the UK. Again, I'm talking, you know, UK based are starting to think, yes, I want therapy. I want to talk to somebody. Um, but actually, if you step into a therapy room and you aren't reflected, it, 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 it's already kind of a difficult thing for you to step into the therapy room, let alone to then not be reflected, heard and understood. It sounds like beyond accessibility for clients and people coming to therapy, there is a bigger picture in terms of accessibility for therapists and yes. people that want to become therapists. Yeah. Is there anything that you can share in terms of tips? It sounds like you're doing a lot in terms of the workshops, but from an accessibility perspective, is there anything that comes to mind that you'd like to see in the profession yeah. over the next few years to help with some of that access? Yeah, definitely. I think there's um, a sense of, well, there's a conversation that I think is ongoing about decolonizing the, the curriculum in general. Um, this also isn't a history podcast, but I think there's there's a sense of there's a long standing history of uh, taking things from places and not giving them credit. So we learn in uh, therapy trainings, we learn a lot of theory. Um, in drama therapy training, we learn about ritual. We do a lot, you know, about uh, kind of drumming and there's a lot of discussion about uh, African ritual and things like that. But actually, let's get some African lecturers, maybe, you know, let's actually see some reflection of different cultures, different races, different, you know, when we talk about protected characteristics under the Equality Act, so we talk about uh, intersecting identities. So again, all of these different terms that basically mean we are all different and come with different things. So whether that be age, gender, sexuality, sexual orientation, race, etc. Let's get some difference into the teaching bodies. And I think that eventually things will start to shift and change because actually if every therapist is being taught through a white female maybe male lens eurocentric then that's all we're going to churn out even if we start getting lots more people into the 
into the classrooms, it might it, it can be very difficult being that other in the classroom. Um, I remember a time when I was being taught uh, years ago in a particular institution and they were talking about the shadow and they're talking about, you know, the shadow being very black and dark and black being awful and black this and black that. And I just remember thinking to myself, wow, like, do you know I'm black? And I'm just, um, do you No, Okay. And at the time, obviously, you know, looking back, I can kind of laugh and cut but again, as we know, we usually laugh through pain. We know that, you know, those big T's, those little T's, we laugh through a lot of those. And again, it's, it's this sense of not realizing even just the wording and, and the fact that if we aren't supporting the people that are teaching us to understand, because again, when you're in that, I feel like as a trainee, you don't necessarily want to be the one that pipes up and say, oh, actually that hurts or, oh, actually look at the narrative we're teaching here. You don't want to be that person. You just want to get through the course and keep it going. Um, so I think it really is about getting different people on the panel, having wider conversations and realizing that, you know, anti-racism has to be something that we're actively doing and looking at the racism that runs through a lot of the theories that we still currently teach on a day to day. Um, I think that is definitely where we need to start. If somebody's listening to this episode and perhaps has somebody in their life that they think might benefit from therapy, or maybe they're just noticing that somebody isn't themselves or perhaps is struggling a little bit, based on your own journey, like what tips can you share for how to start that conversation with somebody that they might be worried about? I think you have to go in with your own personality when discovering any, when, when kind of asking anything like that. The only reason I say that is because I'm very aware that what I would do, other people might not do. So for example, I'm, I'm quite a humorous person. You know, I'm probably the type of person that would say, say something quite straight, quite direct. Oh, I noticed da 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 You're right. Like, you know, that's quite me. And I think anybody around me would probably know that's me so would hopefully not take offense or would hopefully not be upset by me asking in that way kind of thing I think you have to go in with your personality so if you're a person that would say hey let's go for a cup of coffee or whatever let's oh, do you want to come over we'll make some food something like that do it in a way that you're showing concern but also that feels organic if it feels like, oh, I Googled it and then I'm reading a text from what came up on Google of what to say, then it's going to feel weird and it's going to be awkward and I was going to talk about it. Um, so, yeah, I would say, first of all, definitely lead with your personality. Um, secondly, you know, nobody likes to be, I don't think anybody really likes to be told what they're feeling. So without using therapist speak per se, I would kind of just wonder with them. So. I kind of interchange, to be fair, from like therapist language and me language. But, you know, I, n I noticed that. Or, oh, last week when we went out, you seemed really quiet. I just wanted to check you're all right. So, again, just making it sound really organic, I think, is the important thing. Um, so, yeah, I would suggest I would suggest those kind of two things in terms of checking in. And don't be afraid to check in. So I think sometimes people are worried 
I think especially, you know, we're, record, we're recording this, um, you know, Christmas is around the corner, that kind of thing. It's a lonely, awful time for a lot of people. And I think that checking in, especially around this time, is really important as well. Absolutely. It can be such a difficult time of year, you know, Christmas, going into New Year. Yeah. We, without being too kind of trite about it, we see the adverts on TV of these kind of perfect families yep, all enjoying yep. themselves. And it's just not so many people's experience. And I feel like moments like that, whether it's, you know, festive holidays, religious holidays, mm. New Year, birthdays even, yep. can be such a magnifying glass for people mm-hmm. on how they're doing. Yeah. And if they feel like, particularly compared to others or what they're seeing out there on socials or whatever, mm-hmm. if they feel like they're not doing well or even well enough, mm-hmm. I might say, it's a really challenging time for people. Definitely. And I say to people, log off. Like if scrolling and seeing the matching pajamas and seeing the, you know, the dog with the hat, if all of that is too much, log off. Like I think that people often get quite connected to social media and what people see. You know, people need to realise that, you know, all the filters, or again, this is very, you know, cliche in itself in a way, but all the filters, all the matching pajama sets, all the M&S goods, blah, 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 or, or any other supermarket, all of those goods are for the pictures for the day. Yes, I'm not saying that people aren't having wonderful times. I'm sure people are having wonderful times. But there are also a large percent of people who aren't having a good time. Um, and not saying that we have to find solace in the fact that someone is not having a great time. But it is just about sitting in that reality. And if scrolling through is making you feel worse, then just don't do it. Put it down. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I think as well, as you say, not to applaud the fact that not everyone's having a great time, Mm. but even those kind of matching pyjama pictures or whatever it might be, we don't know what's going on behind that picture. Exactly. It might look, quote unquote, like a perfect Christmas, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but we never really know what's going on on socials. Again, I don't want to be too trite about that, Mm. but um, it's kind of questioning what's being presented to you before you compare it to your own experience exactly and that's also you know that's a a very cbt way for us to think about it as well as you know thinking that reminding yourself you know whether it's journaling whether it's you know jotting some things down in a notebook writing some things on a post-it note putting it on the fridge whatever reminding yourself that somebody else's measure of what success is or what has gone well this year or not gone well this year may not necessarily be yours. Somebody else's might be that they, you know, got a new job, bought a house and got a dog. Yours might be that you managed to wake up this morning and fry some eggs. It doesn't matter. Both of them are successes. It all depends on the person. So again, whatever you can do in that moment to try, again, if we think CBT wise, to try to kind of reframe a little bit what you're feeling negative about i think you know again is 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 a good time to do it not resolutions i'm not a fan of new year's new year's resolutions um but just you know congratulating yourself for doing what seems like the little things i think is a really important thing to do this time of year absolutely and noticing them as well like yeah. noticing i really enjoyed that coffee this morning yeah and not letting those moments kind of pass you by into the background as wallpaper exactly but bringing them to the forefront exactly i want to move on to my final question janine yes. which is 
um, over your kind of many years of experience working in mental health and your journey um, as an individual as well, what's the one thing that you've learned about mental health as a takeaway that perhaps you didn't know before, but you would like to share with others now? Therapists are in therapy too. I'm in therapy (laughs) and it gets me through. (laughs) And I think that there's this, there's this sense of your therapist is this like guru that like knows everything and gets everything perfectly right and whatever. No, like, no, we also get things wrong. We also need our own support. I dip in and out of therapy over the years because life, life's and sometimes does things that you don't expect and you need your own support system as well. So I think never looking at anybody else as perfect. So even if you are, you know, if you are going to therapy, your therapist is a human being and they're meeting you in, you're meeting each other in your humanness. They're just a therapist and you're not. So yeah, I would say that that is to never, to never kind of think of anyone as perfect. That's a great insight. Thank you so much. And thank you for joining me on The Waitlist this morning. It's been a really, really good conversation. It was great. Thank you very much. Thanks, Janine.